Well, Hudson Taylor was uh, 21 years old when he hopped on a boat to travel from England to China as the first Protestant missionary to go to mainland China. All told, he served uh, 51 years in China and established the largest missionary organization that China had ever seen. And he had direct involvement in developing a uh, witnessing Christian church in China of 125,000 people. Uh, it's, been, it's been said that some 35,000 of those were people Taylor had a hand in converting himself and that he was also involved in baptizing some 50,000 people. In the year 2000, it was estimated that there were nearly 75 million Christians in China. Hudson Taylor is one of the most gifted and effective Christian missionaries that has ever lived and that has ever existed in the history of Christian missions. A story is told of two women in Shanghai who were talking about pride, and they began to wonder if Hudson Taylor was ever tempted to pride because of all that he'd done in his life. One of the women decided to ask Taylor's wife, Maria, about it, and she promised that she would go back to her husband and find out. When Mrs. Taylor asked her husband if he was ever tempted by pride, he was surprised. Proud about what, he asked. About all the things you've done, his wife explained. Taylor responded, I never knew I had done anything. Humility isn't a virtue that's all that popular in the West, is it? We love to talk about pride. We're told to take pride in ourselves, in our accomplishments, in our favorite sports teams. Humility is hard. Humility doesn't always feel good. Humility means putting others before ourselves. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing on in our series in Philippians called Joy in All Things. And as Kathy just read for us, we'll be spending our time in chapter 2. We'll be talking about joy in humble obedience. So if you're not already there, would you open up to Philippians chapter 2? That's on page 1040 in the Worship Center Bible. Now, otherwise, you can use whatever Bible you brought. Uh, if you're using an app and want to follow along word for word, I'll be in the Christian Standard Bible, but you're certainly welcome to use whatever translation you prefer. Philippians chapter 2. And as we look at our text this morning, we're dealing with the topic of humility, and we're going to see that Paul encourages us to pursue three things as Christians. First up, Paul encourages us to pursue unity through humility. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete. If there is encouragement, if any consolation of love, if fellowship with the Spirit, make my joy complete. He says, as believers who have placed their trust in Jesus, those ifs are probably better understood as since. Since we know all of these things to be true, since we can look back at Scripture and at Christian history and at our own lives and see that there is encouragement in Christ, that there is comfort in his love, we can see that there is fellowship with the Spirit among us. We see that there is affection and mercy in the Christian life. Since all these things are true, Paul says, starting in verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
Consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, in light of the truth of the gospel and the difference that it makes in your life, live like this. Pursue unity through humility. Paul first tackles this unity piece. And what does unity in the Christian body look like? In his book, The Pursuit of God, uh, pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer says this about unity. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. For Paul, as for Tozer, unity is about looking at Jesus together and letting his encouragement, his comfort, his fellowship, his affection, and his mercy tune our hearts to the same common song. Specifically, Paul says, having our hearts tuned to Jesus means that we think the same way. Not that we don't have differing opinions or bring different backgrounds or different perspectives to the table, but what our minds dwell on is the same. Later in Philippians 4, Paul says this, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. As Kathy just read for us in verse 5, it says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. The English Standard Version says, have this mind among yourselves. The NIV says, have the same mindset as Christ. How are we supposed to be united in thought? We're supposed to think like Jesus, and we're supposed to think about Jesus. Not only are we to be united in mind, Paul says, but we're to be united in, by having the same love, the love of Christ both in us and through us. See, what unites us most foundationally as Christians is the love of Jesus demonstrated by the outpouring of his blood on the cross. There is nothing else in this world that brings people together like the shed blood of Jesus. People from different backgrounds, from, with different ethnicities, for different perspectives on life, different socioeconomic classes, different nationalities. In Christ, we're all equal. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all united by his love in us and by his love working through us. Finally, Paul says that in light of the light, or sorry, Paul says that in light of the gospel in our lives, we are to be united in one purpose. What is that purpose? To make Jesus known. Here at Crossview Church, we say that that purpose is to love God, love others, and serve the world. That's the purpose of the church. United as believers who look to Jesus for their strength and their encouragement and their affirmation. See, if we look at anything else to unify us, it won't work. If we don't look at the mission of the church and if we don't look at Jesus to unify us, we won't be united. We're too broken to be united over anything that comes from inside of us and we're too inconsistent and fickle to have some sort of common interest in a sports team or a musician or an artist 
or an author or something else to unite us in any kind of meaningful way, especially for eternity. But when we unite around the hope and the joy and the truth, that absolute unwavering truth of Jesus, now we're talking, right? God himself ordained the church, the greatest organization, I think, in the history of the world. He ordained us to take his gospel forth, and we will be most effective in our mission and purpose only when we are united around the gospel of Jesus Christ, only when our hearts are tuned to the same fork. Unity, Paul says, but how? Through humility. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others more important. Everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Pastor and author Tim Keller has this to say about unity, or sorry, about humility uh, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy. Keller writes this. He says, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Keller says, gospel humility is not thinking higher or lower of myself, but thinking of myself less often and of others more. Hudson Taylor's uh, conversation with his wife nails this idea of gospel humility, doesn't it? For 51 years, Taylor served in China, and he was so wrapped up in taking the message of the gospel forward and getting the truth about Christ out that he never stopped to think about himself, about how he was contributing and about what he was doing. He had one mind, he had one love, and he had one purpose, to bring the gospel to the world. This idea of such humility is in stark contrast to the self-help and self-centered world that we live in right now. Right? Everywhere and everything is telling us to make the most of every opportunity, to grow ourselves, to develop ourselves, to pursue our interests to the nth degree, right? To make the most of our opportunities, to build our name and to make ourselves great. It's not a new focus, right? The selfish ambition. It's been around since Adam and Eve first believed what the serpent told them that they could expand their knowledge and be like God and know and experience things beyond their wildest dreams. We're still chasing that today, aren't we? Well, God takes selfish ambition and destroys it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, out of conceit, he says. And conceit here is the smashing together of two words in Greek, empty and glory. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, pursuing empty glory. Making yourself great, growing your particular brand, and uh, making a big name for yourself is empty glory. And we don't have to look much further than our social media pages not to see this, do we? Our perfect lives with our perfect families all portrayed in these perfect pictures. Nothing 
is ever wrong, and even if it is, even if uh, people get a glimpse into our lives, we can find the perfect meme or gif, or if you pronounce it incorrectly, gif, uh, and, or this artsy Bible verse or whatever to make people see how even though they think they see our lives falling apart, we've actually got it under control, right? Just look at Facebook, and you'll see that this is true. Our Bibles are in pristine condition because we're not wrestling with God, but our phone screens are smudged and scratched because we just have to get that perfect shot. We just have to find that perfect artsy Bible verse to describe exactly how we're doing. It's emptying meaningless glory as people we don't talk to in most cases, or in many cases, people we don't even like, see how great we're doing and how far our ambition has taken us. Well, God's word tells us to think of ourselves less and others more, looking not only for our own interests, but instead for the interests of others. The only way that we can be united as the church and on mission for Jesus is if we pursue unity through humility. If we're constantly looking out for our interests and looking at ourselves and not others, we'll never be tuned to the same fork and we'll never be as effective in gospel ministry as God would have us be. So the first point of application this morning is simple and challenging, and it might be a slap in your face. It often is in mind. Think of yourself less and others more. Think of yourself less and of others more. Unity through humility. The second thing Paul encourages us to pursue is the attitude of Christ. Let's look back at verses 5 through 11. It says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything that Paul has just encouraged us towards is ultimately summed up in the person and work of Jesus. For us, As believers, Jesus is the one that we look to as the example of ultimate humility. Paul starts this way. He says, Jesus existing in the form of God. This is where it all starts with Jesus, right? Jesus is fully God. Jesus exists, existed then and exists now as fully God, as part of what theologians call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God existing eternally as three persons. Jesus is God. That's not up for debate. And while existing as God, Jesus emptied himself, it says, and assumed the form of a servant, of a slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. Jesus was fully God and is fully God, and now, here Paul says, fully man, like us in every way, experiencing temptation like us in every way, and perhaps even greater temptation than you and I ever could. See, at any point in Jesus' life, he could have done what verse 6 says, and he could have exploited his equality with God. 
as people mocked him, and as people didn't believe who he was, didn't believe he was who he says he was, and as we just reflected upon in communion, as he was poured out on the cross for our sins, he could have exploited his equality with God and supernaturally remedied any one of those situations. Instead, Paul says that when he had come as a man, he was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. Jesus didn't exploit his power for his own glory. Jesus was humble. Jesus was obedient. Jesus had more power in his pinky than we can possibly imagine, right? He healed people. He raised people from the dead. He cast out demons. He spoke with such authority that people had never heard before, and he did it all that we might believe in him and by believing have new life. See, Jesus could have used that power and could have lived the life of a lavish king, right? He could have experienced an earthly life to the fullest. He could have seen the sights of the world and enjoyed everything as a human that the earth has to offer, but he didn't. He was humble. He was obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus did that for you, and he did that for me. He hung on the cross for my sin, not for his, right? Not to pay for anything that he'd done, but to pay fully for what I've done. Jesus thought about himself and his well-being very, very little, and about my eternal salvation and yours a whole lot. Adopt the same attitude of Jesus, Paul says. Adopt an attitude of humility and obedience because of what Jesus did. Keller goes on and talks about this idea in that book, uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? The atheist might say they get their self-image from being a good person. They are a good person and they hope that eventually they will get a verdict that confirms they are a good person. Performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhist, too, performance leads to the verdict. If you are a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you are in the courtroom, every day you are on trial. That is the problem. But Paul is saying that in Christianity, the verdict leads to performance. It is not the performance that leads to the verdict. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well Pleased. In other words, because of Jesus' obedience and humility and submission to death on the cross, you have been declared righteous and free from your sin and all of its consequences in eternity. Period. Now start living like it. I was listening to a podcast this week about money uh, and reading this book on self-forgetfulness and Christian joy, and it stood out to me that in both of these areas where people are often trying to grow, uh, both the author and the podcaster gently but firmly called for change. Both said, look, your situation is this, right? You're kind of living like this and you want to do this, so change, We as Christians have the benefit of the Holy Spirit working in us to help us with that change. But friends, we have to do something. So when Paul tells us to think of others more, and when he says think of yourselves less, and when he says adopt the attitude of Jesus and assume the form of a servant, when he says be willing to obey God's word even to the point of death, when he says all those things, he means it. If your life is not reflecting these patterns— You don't have to sit in it. Don't sit there and let the enemy attack you and tell you how awful of a person you are. Understand that your verdict 
is in, and it is not tied to your performance, and you are declared free. And then hit your knees in prayer and ask God to radically transform your heart in such a way that the thought of me and what I want would fade to the background as you seek the attitude of Christ, an attitude of humble obedience and submission to the word of God and the commands in it. Jesus was fully obedient to the Father in all humility. And Paul says because of his obedience, even to the point of death, he was and is highly exalted. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This can be hard to believe as we look around at people around us and as we see the way that uh, people are moving and what people are worshiping, but Jesus is exalted. He has the name above all names. He is the only true king who is worthy of our worship and our lives and worthy of who is worthy of our worship and our lives and worthy of following and submitting to. If you're here this morning, let that truth soak in. If you believe that, soak it in. Look to Jesus with wonder and awe as you recognize that the literal king of the universe humbled himself and died on your behalf and now reigns on high. And let that motivate you to be like him. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted Jesus, ask God to reveal himself to you. We're reading right here that Jesus is exalted. He's the king. It says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and we will recognize his absolute power and glory. And it is true. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But that doesn't mean that every person will be with him for eternity. Scripture says that only those who trust in him in this life will be forgiven. Hebrews tells us that it's appointed once for man to die and then judgment. Those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and trust him to cover their sins will be washed clean by his blood and spend eternity in glory with him. Those who have not will be found guilty and instead will spend their days in eternal conscious punishment. It's important that you don't wait to make a decision like this. You don't know how much time you have left. And so if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, ask him to reveal himself to you and make today the day that you change your life for all eternity by being washed in the blood of Jesus and made clean. Paul urges us to pursue unity through humility, to pursue the attitude of Christ, and finally, to pursue joyful obedience. Let's look at verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. 
Paul says, just as you have always obeyed, so now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul picks back up on this idea in chapter 1 that we are to live our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, of living in light of the fact that the verdict is in. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says. When Paul uses this word salvation, it's really a three-part thing. You may have heard this before, but our salvation is past, present, and future, right? Justification, sanctification, glorification. When we confess Jesus, we are saved immediately from the penalty of sin. For many of us, many of us that's in the past, justification. In present sanctification, we are being saved progressively from the power and practice of sin, and in future glorification, we are saved ultimately and fully from the presence of all sin. So, when Paul says earn, or when Paul says this, when he says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, does he mean to earn your salvation, your justification by working hard? Absolutely not, right? We could never do that. Paul assumes that we're already justified. In this section, he's writing specifically to believers. So does he instead mean in light of your salvation work hard at sanctification? Yes. The call to Jesus comes at a high cost, right? We see that over and over from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospels and from the lives of his followers. Few know the high cost of following Jesus better than Paul himself who wrote this letter from prison. Following Jesus can mean a tremendous amount of work mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually as we recognize our need to totally overhaul our lives so that we can be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus day by day. Eugene Peterson, a pastor, calls this process long obedience in the same direction. That's what sanctification looks like, long obedience in the same direction. We work and we strive and we press forward into Jesus. And as you strive to change and become more Christ-like, Paul says that you working out your salvation is actually God working in you according to his purposes. God comes alongside and uses the work that you're putting in to mold you into his image, into what he wants. Being a Christian is hard, right? Following Christ is hard. Being transformed is hard, and the reality is we could never be transformed on our own. We can't bring about change in our own lives. It's only by the power of the Spirit working in and through us, but this is a very real call to action from God's Word. Yes, the Spirit is working. Yes, it's God who is changing us according to His purpose, and yes, it is on us to do everything we can to work that process out. Paul uses the word fear here, right? Work out your salvation with fear. The fear he's describing isn't like your fear of the dark or fear of spiders or whatever silly fear you have. Instead, the idea of fear here is a wholesome, healthy reverence for God and a sober realization that we need to take him and his word very, very seriously. Not just fear, but also trembling quaking with fear. One commentator said that this phrase, fear and trembling, carries the idea of a Christian doing his utmost to fulfill his duty because he knows to whom he owes that duty. Our God is worthy of our fear and trembling. I think these two words, fear and trembling, are often rejected as motivators 
uh, for following Jesus and for obedience in the 21st century. But in Paul's day, they were very, very real. Over and over, we see the fear of the Lord coming on God's people throughout Scripture. We see that uh, the Bible tells us that there is no fear of God in the eyes of unbelievers. And First Peter tells us that we are to conduct ourselves in fear of the Lord during our time as sojourners or aliens here on earth. We serve a holy God who is worthy of our obedience. And when we begin to grasp the gravity of what God has done on our behalf, and who he is and the power that he has, fear and trembling are very appropriate responses and motivators to our behavior. Well, as we work this out, Paul gives us four specific areas to work on as we work out our sanctification, as we're driven by this fear and trembling, as we recognize who God is and seek to become more and more like his son. First, he says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Is that straightforward? Yes. Is that a simple statement? Yes. Is that easy? Of course not. But Paul says that as we work out our salvation, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Follow Jesus without complaining under your breath and without arguing out loud about what you're called to do. See, grumbling with other believers is dangerous and breeds destruction and division in the body of Christ. Whether that grumbling is about people in your life, your friends who did something, or the direction of the church, or whatever, grumbling is not helpful. Instead, approach your disputes and issues in a God-honoring way. Instead of going to all your friends and complaining about your other friend who did something or who offended you in some way or who made a decision that you didn't think was right, instead of going to all your friends and talking about that, go to the individual and have a conversation with them. If you've got a concern about the direction of the church, instead of not talking to other people in the body and causing divisions unnecessarily, talk to the elders or pastoral staff first. Don't raise unnecessary division in the church before you fully understand a situation. The list of applications for do not grumble could go on and on, right? But Paul says do everything, everything without grumbling and arguing. Why is that important? Well, because secondly, he says that we are to shine like stars in the world. Grumbling and complaining hurt your witness for Christ. And we are called to be like stars in the world, shining brightly for the gospel. As we have this gospel humility and think of others above ourselves, and as we adopt this attitude of Christ, our purpose is is ultimately to be transformed into the image of Jesus so that others will see him, not us, and trust in him for salvation. Obey joyfully so that you will shine with gospel hope. Third, he says, hold firm to the word of life. How do we shine? By doing this, by holding firm to the word of life. We must cling to the truth that Jesus says, I am the way, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one gets to the Father but by him. We must believe what scripture has to say about how we attain salvation and about what is right and about how we should live and about what is true rather than trusting our feelings or even what we think. Every shred of our feelings and every shred of information from the outside and even what people tell us, even what 
I, your pastor, tells you all of that should be compared to Scripture to determine its legitimacy, right? Our, our feelings lie. People lie. Scripture doesn't. Scripture doesn't lie. We must not only believe what these words say, but we need to proclaim the hope that they offer to those around us, right? We often hear this phrase, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. Do not listen to that. Do not do that. Preach the gospel always. Use words. If people do not hear the words of life, they cannot believe them. So hold firm to the word of life by believing it, by living it, and by talking about it. Finally, he says, be glad and rejoice with me. We talked last week about having joy in difficult circumstances, right? And your life might be really hard right now. Paul knew well what it was to have a hard life, and yet he urged us and himself to have joy. How? What can you take joy in when your circumstances are difficult? Well, you can have joy and rejoice in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can take joy in the goodness of God, in the reality that your verdict is in before your performance, that God is at work in you according to his good purposes. The list goes on and on and on. But Paul says, be glad and rejoice no matter your circumstance. He says, even if I am poured out, even if I must obey and follow Christ, even to the point of death, rejoice. Just as we hold firm to the word of life so that others might see Jesus and might know him, we are called to be glad and rejoice so that others might be encouraged. Paul is glad and he rejoices with the Philippian people. And we need to be people who are glad and rejoice together because we of all people have something to celebrate. We have been, are being, and will be saved from the power and presence of sin and its consequences for all eternity. We open this morning with a story about Hudson Taylor and the humility he had when asked about the accomplishments of his life. And I want to encourage you to take the text this morning and consider how you might become joyfully obedient to Jesus. How you might think of yourself less and others more and how you might begin to take some steps to work out your sanctification with fear and trembling. And the good news is, we serve a God who didn't simply dictate his commands of how to do that from heaven, but who sent his son to live so that we could see him and see how. So take joy in his example as he transforms your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. We thank you and we praise you for Jesus, for your son who had the ultimate example of humility, Lord, who deserves all glory and praise and honor and who ultimately you did lift high, Father, but you sent him and he was poured out on our behalf and so uh, we praise you and thank you for that. Would you allow us to adopt an attitude like him? Would you remind us day after day that we're to think of others more highly than ourselves? Lord, let us think of ourselves less and others more. Father, we need your help in doing that. And so uh, we lift the name of Jesus high this morning and we thank you for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.